This is a continuation of Notes on the Process of Bureaucratic Capitalism in the Third World Countries by Peru People's Movement. Technology Transfer and the FDI Package Let us continue with the case study. The transfer of the FDI package includes products and processes and management of specific technologies, the components of which are regulated according to a contract. Thus, the transfer options are, from the very outset of each foreign direct investment project, limited by these agreements. The degree of success that is possible for the native party to achieve is crucial, starting from the package of FDI at its disposal, combined with their own abilities to establish production. In many cases, the transfer of real knowledge consists of the investor's own knowledge, know-how, which cannot be transmitted completely in the technical specifications, drawings, and operating instructions, etc., which can be agreed upon. It is therefore important to ascertain what knowledge is actually and truly transferred by the foreign investor. Often, the quality of the production is consciously reduced to a minimum so as to not jeopardize the technical advantage of the foreign investor, or simply to prevent the foreign branch from producing exactly the same component. In some cases, the recipient has found that, although all the technical information is accurate, the foreign branch can produce exactly the same component. In some cases, the recipient has experienced that, although all the technical information is complete, there is still something missing. This lack of knowledge lies in the experience of the investor, and there is no rule of thumb for predicting when and to what extent the recipient of this knowledge can acquire said experience. For example, the drawings contain precise technical data and precise manufacturing instructions. However, some of the information is missing, e.g. the optimum manufacturing temperature, which is only discovered after several years. It is therefore impossible to determine the exact value of the investor's intangible assets, but it is up to the receiving party to determine the specific value of this knowledge in greater depth. In addition, we would like to note that what is transferred in each investment project is a product or model already in production. So even if it is the newest or the latest, it is already obsolete because the parent company is already researching and developing a new one. This research and development, R&D, is not transmitted within the package, but remains with the parent company. Moreover, Machines for manufacturing workshops are older models and in many cases have been withdrawn. They have zero, or symbolic, value in the books, and when they are exported as part of the FDI package, they acquire a new value as a fixed asset in the foreign accounts of the subsidiary. But even if these machines are of the latest generation, they do not in any way contribute to the technological development of the host country since they are foreign products and by the same token, do not signify the development of the machine production sector to produce machines for industry in the host country. The main thing to emphasize is that foreign investment is carried out according to the development interests of the monopoly in the struggle for the world market. 
the enterprises generated in the oppressed countries or in the most backward imperialist countries like China are bound by tentacles to the imperialist enterprises, which ensure, by all means and in all cases, the subjugation of the enterprises which imperialist finance capital played an instrumental role in generating. Taiwan, another of the four Asian tigers. Another of the four Asian tigers is Taiwan. It is dominated by imperialism, principally Yankee, in collusion and struggle with Japanese imperialism and other imperialist countries. The study of Taiwan demonstrates how the process of the greater domination of imperialism in recent decades has been carried out, just like it has in the other oppressed countries. Domination, which they tried to hide with their terminology of globalization, new international division of labor, and integration into the global production chain. That is why it is good to take some concrete data into account, such as those contained in the above-mentioned research concerning the period of 1952 to 1997, which we include as a note. After what we include as a note, the article says, On the other hand, Taiwan is also an active overseas investor with the objective of expanding its network of production and distribution and of penetrating into new markets. In this sense, the financial and insurance sector dominated in 2012, and its outflow abroad tripled to more than 4.5 billion US dollars. In second place came, as expected, the electronics sector with 1.35 billion US dollars. Metallurgical equipment came in third place with 643.4 million US dollars. Of the 8.1 billion dollars of direct investments with which Taiwan undertook foreign ventures, the largest share went to Singapore in 2012. 4.5 billion US dollars or 55.6% flowed into the city-state of Southeast Asia. The share of capital invested in Japan was 13%, in Vietnam 11.7%. Finally, 0.2% of Taiwanese investments went to Germany. Information from the Taiwanese Ministry of Economic Affairs Investment Commission, 2013. In any case, investments originating in Taiwan and operating respectively in mainland China are not listed here. In reality, the investments by Taiwanese companies in China represent the largest share of investments, despite the fact that the Taiwan Investment Commission in 2012 recorded only an investment of 10.9 billion US dollars to the other side of the Taiwan Strait, 17% less than in the previous year. Of this, 1.95 billion US dollars went to the electronics sector and 1.52 billion to the information and communications technology sector. At the same time, mainland China's investments in Taiwan from 2011 to 2012 grew more than sevenfold to reach 328 million US dollars. This is a decisive expansion of the scope of such investments that is authorized. It was only in August 2012 that Taiwan and China signed an agreement to protect and promote investment. The underlining Taiwan is also an active overseas investor with the objective of expanding its network of production and distribution and of penetrating into new markets. In the preceding quotation is ours. With it, we want to emphasize the intermediary role of the monopolies of bureaucratic capitalist countries like Taiwan, as we can see more clearly in the motives of Japanese investment in Taiwan, daughter companies, 
in comparison with the motives of these investments in China, granddaughter companies. Likewise, by comparing the investments of the Grand Comprador Bourgeoisie of Taiwan in Southeast Asia with what we saw earlier regarding the development of FDI in the parts industry for the electronics and high-tech industry, we can understand the importance Lenin gives to the holding system in order to understand imperialism as the stage of the domination of the monopolies generated by finance capital in contrast to the stage of free competition capitalism. The monopolies of the countries of bureaucratic capitalism have been generated and are subordinated by the most varied ties to the monopolies of the imperialist countries. Ultimately, their existence depends on their imperialist masters. One point which we can already establish is that the increase in foreign investment by the imperialist countries is followed by the apparent decrease in their exports to the semi-colonial countries or to other imperialist countries, especially to those which are less developed, such as China. Law of Unequal Development This is particularly evident in the case of US imperialism and Japanese imperialism in this region of Asia. An expression of the imperialist parasitism and economic backwardness in the imperialist countries caused by the export of capital. Another point is that a great part of imperialist investment in China is done through Hong Kong, Taiwan, and South Korea, which act as platforms for imperialist finance capital. This becomes even more obvious when we consider that imperialist investment is growing in these countries in the form of development of the banks and their financial sector. At the same time, the Chinese imperialists are seeking to reorganize and further develop their banking and financial sector and services sector in general. Taiwan is now being surpassed by Korea as the second largest investor in China. For this reason, in regional scenarios, we cannot overlook the subordinate and subjugated role it represents with respect to the interests of its owner which the struggles between the grand intermediary bourgeoisie of the semi-colonial countries represent. The understanding of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism of this process in its entirety. Let us ask ourselves, how do we understand this process? What is the nature of this development? It has been established that this whole process in the oppressed countries exists only under the domination of imperialist foreign investment. In 1975, Chairman Gonzalo asked himself a similar question about the national situation, to which he responded, How does Marxism see the question? Mao Zedong analyzes this problem in On Coalition Government, as can be read on page 302 and volume 3 of his works. In order to defeat the Japanese aggressors and build a new China, it is necessary to develop industry. But under the Kuomintang government, there is dependence on foreign countries for everything, and its financial and economic policy is ruining the entire economic life of the people. A few small industrial enterprises are all that is to be found in the Kuomintang areas, and in most cases they have been unable to avoid bankruptcy. In the absence of political reforms, all the productive forces are being ruined, and this is true both of agriculture and of industry. By and large, it will be impossible to develop industry unless China is independent, free, democratic, and united. To wipe out the Japanese aggressors is to seek independence. 
to abolish the Kuomintang's one-party dictatorship, establish a democratic and united coalition government, transform all China's troops into a people's armed force, carry out land reform, and emancipate the peasants, is to seek freedom, democracy, and unity. Without independence, freedom, democracy, and unity, it is impossible to build industry on a really large scale. Without industry, there can be no solid national defense, no well-being for the people, no prosperity or strength for the nation. In Maria Teji's opinion regarding this matter, we highlight, Imperialism does not allow any of these semi-colonial peoples, whom it exploits as a market for capital and commodities and a source for raw materials, to have an economic program of nationalization and industrialization. It compels them to undertake monopolization and monoculture. Petroleum, copper, sugar, cotton in Peru. So for Maria Teji, imperialism does not allow us to develop true national industry, i.e. industry at the service of the nation, nor an independent industrialization program. If the possibilities of industry are indeed limited by the structure and character of the national economy, it is further limited by the dependence of economic life upon the interests of foreign capitalism, as he teaches us in Capitalism or Socialism. This is the situation in our country. Industry is developing as dependent industry and, in consequence, submitted to the interests of imperialism, principally North American. Since before the Second World War, there have been multiple opportunities to stimulate the industrial process whilst at the same time developing the direct participation of the state in said process. But as it could not be any other way, given the classes that command the state, the vision that motivates them is to develop a process of industrialization under the canopy of imperialism. Precisely. It's as if this was written as a commentary on the studies quoted further above regarding economic development in Asia. Chairman Gonzalo continues further down in the article of People's Voice. How should one understand bureaucratic capitalism in our country? Mao Zedong extraordinarily, although in a condensed form, in his selected works presents us with the question of bureaucratic capitalism, volume 3 in On Coalition Government. While considering the serious situation which the great popular masses found themselves in under the domination of the Kuomintang, he says, Why has such a grave situation arisen under the leadership of the Kuomintang's chief ruling clique? It has arisen because that clique represents the interests of China's big landlords, big bankers, and the magnates of the comprador bourgeoisie. The handful of people forming this reactionary stratum monopolize all the important military, political, economic, and cultural organizations under the Kuomintang government. They too say, the nation above all, but their actions do not accord with the demands of the great majority of the nation. They too say, the state above all, but what they mean is the feudal fascist dictatorship of the big landlords, big bankers, and big compradors, and not a democratic state of the people. Therefore, they are afraid of the rise of the people, afraid of the democratic movement. They talk about developing China's economy, but in fact, they build up their own bureaucrat capital, i.e. the capital of big landlords, bankers, and compradors, and monopolize the lifelines of China's economy, ruthlessly oppressing the peasants, the workers, the petty bourgeoisie, and the non-monopoly bourgeoisie. They talk about putting democracy into practice and 
handing state power back to the people. Yet they ruthlessly suppressed the people's movement for democracy and refused to introduce the mildest democratic reform. Page 224, emphasis placed by, like in all other quotes, people's voice. Let us take note of the key issue. Firstly, Mao defines bureaucratic capital as being that of the big landlords, big bankers, and magnates of the comprador bourgeoisie. Secondly, he points out that bureaucratic capital monopolizes the economy. And thirdly, he says that it ruthlessly oppresses the peasants, the workers, the petty bourgeoisie, and the non-monopoly bourgeoisie. From this basis and economic position, the reactionary political character of bureaucratic capital necessarily derives. In Volume 4, Mao analyzes the process of development of bureaucratic capitalism. Confiscate the land of the feudal class and turn it over to the peasants. Confiscate monopoly capital headed by Chiang Kai-shek, T.V. Soon, H.H. Kung, and Chen Li Fu and turn it over to the new democratic state. Protect the industry and commerce of the national bourgeoisie. These are the three major economic policies of the new democratic revolution. During their 20-year rule, the four big families, Chang, Soong, Kung, and Chen, have piled up enormous fortunes valued at 10 to 20,000 million US dollars and monopolized the economic lifelines of the whole country. This monopoly capital, combined with state power, has become state monopoly capitalism. This monopoly capitalism, closely tied up with foreign imperialism, the domestic landlord class, and the old type rich peasants, has become comprador, feudal, state monopoly capitalism. Such is the economic base of Chiang Kai-shek's reactionary regime. This state monopoly capitalism oppresses not only the workers and peasants, but also the urban petty bourgeoisie, and it injures the middle bourgeoisie. The state monopoly capitalism reached the peak of its development during the War of Resistance and after the Japanese surrender. It has prepared ample material conditions for the new democratic revolution. This capital is popularly known in China as bureaucrat capital. This capitalist class, known as the bureaucrat capitalist class, is the big bourgeoisie of China. Chairman Mao, Selected Works, Volume 4, The Present Situation and Our Tasks, page 167. Let us pass immediately to the comment Chairman Gonzalo made on the quote in the previously cited People's Voice article. In this text, Mao establishes the development of bureaucratic capitalism. He shows us how this capital of the four families piled up enormous fortunes, completely monopolizing the economy. He then points out how monopoly bureaucratic capital, combined with state power, has become state monopoly capitalism. This is significant. Monopoly capital, by interlinking with the state, becomes state monopoly capital, not simply, as some believe, state capitalism. The most important thing is that it is monopoly capital, and this is the essence of its unbreakable bond with imperialism. Remember that Lenin demonstrated that the economic essence of imperialism is its condition as monopoly capitalism. On the other hand, Mao teaches us that this monopoly capitalism, which is closely tied to imperialism, to the landlords and to the rich peasants of old type in its development, has become, as he puts it, state monopoly capitalism, comprador, and feudal. Mao Zedong feels not only that this is the economic base of the Kuomintang regime, 
but also that this state monopoly capitalism oppresses the workers and peasants, and also the urban petty bourgeoisie, and injures the middle bourgeoisie. And finally, in reaching the peak of its development, it has prepared ample material conditions for the new democratic revolution. This is a point of extraordinary importance. Even though among us there is talk of bureaucratic capitalism, no attention is paid to the fact that this, in its development, matures the conditions for the national democratic revolution. We must study this grand thesis of Mao Zedong concerning bureaucratic capitalism very seriously and use it as a guideline to judge our process of capitalist development. Here, Chairman Gonzalo posits the necessity for us to understand bureaucratic capitalism. It not only allows us to understand our own society, but also to understand social formations which are similar to ours, which is essential to carrying out democratic revolution. The general political line of the Communist Party of Peru states, Taking up Chairman Mao's thesis, Chairman Gonzalo teaches us that it has five characteristics. One, that bureaucratic capitalism is the capitalism that imperialism develops in the backward countries, which is comprised of the capital of large landowners, the big bankers, and the magnates of the big bourgeoisie. Two, it exploits the proletariat, the peasantry, and the petty bourgeoisie, and constrains the middle bourgeoisie. Three, it is passing through a process in which bureaucratic capitalism is combined with the power of the state and becomes state monopoly capitalism, comprador and feudal, from which can be derived that, in a first moment, it unfolds as a non-state big monopoly capitalism, and in a second moment, when it is combined with the power of the state, it unfolds as state monopoly capitalism. Four, it ripens the conditions for the democratic revolution as it reaches the apex of its development. And five, confiscating bureaucratic capital is key to reaching the pinnacle of the democratic revolution and is decisive in passing over to the socialist revolution. In applying the above, he conceives that a bureaucratic capitalism is the capitalism that imperialism generates in the backward countries, tied to a decrepit feudalism, and subjugated to imperialism, which is the last phase of capitalism. The system does not serve the majority of the people, but only the imperialists, the big bourgeoisie, and the landlords. It is thus a bureaucratic capitalism that oppresses and exploits the proletariat, the peasantry, and the petty bourgeoisie, and that constricts the middle bourgeoisie. Why? Because the capitalism that develops is a delayed process that only allows an economy to serve imperialist interests. It is a capitalism that represents the big bourgeoisie, the landlords, and the rich peasants of the old type, the classes that constitute a minority, but which exploit and oppress the large majority, the masses. He analyzes the process that bureaucratic capitalism has followed in Peru, the first historical moment which develops from 1895 to the Second World War, in which, during the 1920s, the comprador bourgeoisie assumes control of the state, displacing the landlords but respecting their interests. The second moment is from the Second World War to 1980, a period of its deepening, during which a branch of the big bourgeoisie evolves into the bureaucratic bourgeoisie. Thus, a clash between both factions of the big bourgeoisie is generated between the bureaucratic and the comprador bourgeoisie. The third moment is from 1980 onward, in which bureaucratic capitalism enters into a general crisis and its final destruction, and no measure can save it.
At best, it shall lengthen its agony. On the other hand, like a beast in mortal agony, it will defend itself by seeking to crush the revolution. If we see this process from the People's Road, in the first moment, the PCP was constituted with Mariatehi in 1928, and the history of the country was divided into two. In the second, the PCP was reconstituted as a party of a new type by Chairman Gonzalo, and revisionism was purged. And in the third, the PCP entered to lead the People's War, a transcendental milestone which radically changed history by taking the qualitatively superior leap of making the conquest of power a reality by way of armed force and the People's War. All of this only proves the political aspect of bureaucratic capitalism that is rarely emphasized, but which Chairman Gonzalo considers as the key question. Bureaucratic capitalism ripens the conditions for revolution, and today, as it enters into its final phase, it ripens the conditions for the development and victory of the revolution. It is also very important to see how bureaucratic capitalism is shaped by non-state monopoly capitalism and by state monopoly capitalism. That is the reason why he differentiates between the two factions of the big bourgeoisie, the bureaucratic and the comprador, in order to avoid tailing behind one or the other, a problem that led our party to 30 years of wrong tactics. It is important to understand it this way, since the confiscation of bureaucratic capitalism by the new power leads to the completion of the democratic revolution and the advance into the socialist revolution. If only the state monopoly capitalism is targeted, the non-state monopoly capital would remain free, and the big comprador bourgeoisie would remain economically able to lift its head, to snatch away the leadership of the revolution, and to prevent its passage to the socialist revolution. Furthermore, Chairman Gonzalo generalizes that bureaucratic capitalism is not a process peculiar to China or to Peru, but that it follows the belated conditions in which the various imperialists subjugate the oppressed nations of Asia, Africa, and Latin America at a time when these oppressed nations have not yet destroyed the vestiges of feudalism, much less developed capitalism. In thesis, the key question to understand the process of contemporary Peruvian society and the character of the revolution is this Marxist-Leninist-Maoist Gonzalo Thought thesis on bureaucratic capitalism, which is a contribution to the world revolution that we, upholders of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism and Gonzalo Thought, have firmly taken up. We have quoted this part of the PCP document, Line of the Democratic Revolution, from the First Congress in full because of the key importance this topic holds for the communists of the world. With regards to this, there is another question of paramount importance to carrying out the democratic revolution and digging up the three mountains that oppress us, so we must continue with the quote from Chairman Mao discussed in the same People's Voice article, which says, Besides doing away with the special privileges of imperialism in China, the task of the new democratic revolution at home is to abolish exploitation and oppression by the landlord class and by the bureaucrat capitalist class, the big bourgeoisie, change the comprador feudal relations of production, and unfetter the productive forces. The upper petty bourgeoisie and middle bourgeoisie, oppressed and injured by the landlords and big bourgeoisie and their state power, may take part in the new democratic revolution or stay neutral though they themselves are bourgeois. They have no, or comparatively few, 
ties with imperialism and are the genuine national bourgeoisie. Wherever the state power of new democracy extends, it must firmly and unhesitatingly protect them. In Chiang Kai-shek's areas, there are a small number of people among the upper petty bourgeoisie and the middle bourgeoisie, the right wing of these classes, who have reactionary political tendencies, spread illusions about U.S. imperialism and the reactionary Chiang Kai-shek clique, and oppose the People's Democratic Revolution. As long as their reactionary tendencies can affect the masses, we should unmask them before the people under their political influence, attack this influence, and liberate the masses from it. But political attack and economic annihilation are two different matters, and we shall make mistakes if we confuse the two. The new democratic revolution aims at wiping out only feudalism and monopoly capitalism, only the landlord class and the bureaucrat capitalist class, the big bourgeoisie, and not at wiping out capitalism in general, the upper petty bourgeoisie, or the middle bourgeoisie. Chairman Mao, Selected Works, Volume 4, The Present Situation and Our Tasks, page 167 to 168. Appropriately, Chairman Gonzalo reminds us that the task of applying Marxism to the study of the development of capitalism in agriculture fell to Lenin and that the peasant path has been extraordinarily studied and developed by Chairman Mao. And he tells us, In turning to Lenin, we find a solid basis from the conception of the working class upon which to judge a substantive question. In the agrarian program of social democracy and the Russian Revolution, in volume 15 of his collected works, Lenin teaches us that the development in a capitalist country may take place in two different ways. Either the latifundia remain and gradually become the basis of capitalist economy on the land. This is the Prussian type of agrarian capitalism in which the junker is the master of the situation. For whole decades there continue both his political domination and the oppression, degradation, poverty, and illiteracy of the peasant. The productive forces develop very slowly. Or else the revolution sweeps away the landed estates. The basis of capitalist agriculture now becomes the free farmer on free land, i.e. land clear of all medieval junk. This is the American type of agrarian capitalism and the most rapid development of productive forces under conditions which are more favorable for the mass of the people than any others under capitalism. In reality, the struggle going on in the Russian Revolution is not about socialization and other absurdities of the Narodniks. This is merely petite bourgeois ideology, petite bourgeois phrase-mongering and nothing more, but about what road capitalist development of Russia will take, the Prussian or the American. Without ascertaining this economic basis of the revolution, it is absolutely impossible to understand anything about an agrarian program. All the cadets, party of the grand bourgeoisie, do their utmost to obscure the essence of the agrarian revolution. The cadets mix up, reconcile, the two main types of agrarian program in the revolution, the landlord and the peasant types. Then, also in a few words, in Russia, both types of capitalist agrarian evolution already made their appearance in the years between 1861 and 1905. Both the Prussian, the gradual development of landlord economy in the direction of capitalism, and the American, differentiation of the peasantry and a rapid development of productive forces. Here, 
The two paths in the countryside are masterfully laid out. The countryside, which is the economic base of the revolution, from which we must start and which we absolutely cannot circumvent. But this is not all. Lenin establishes a relationship between these two economic paths and political paths. In the same work, he says, The genuine historical question which objective historical and social development is putting to us is a Prussian or an American type of agrarian evolution. A landlord's monarchy with the fig leaf of a sham constitution or a peasant farmer's republic. To close our eyes to such an objective statement of the case by history means to deceive oneself and others, hiding in Philistine fashion from the acute class struggle, from the acute, simple, and decisive presentation of the question of a democratic revolution. We cannot get rid of the bourgeois state. Only petty bourgeois Philistines can dream of doing so. Our revolution is a bourgeois revolution precisely because the struggle going on in it is not between socialism and capitalism, but between two forms of capitalism, two paths of its development, two forms of bourgeois democratic institutions. The monarchy of the Octobris or the cadets is a relative bourgeois democracy from the point of view of the Menshevik Novosetsky. The proletarian peasant republic too is a bourgeois democracy. In our revolution, we cannot make a single step, and we have not made a single step, which did not support in one way or another, one section of the bourgeoisie or another, against the old order. This great thesis of Lenin is essential to understanding the agrarian problem within the National Democratic Revolution. Nonetheless, in our country, there are those who consider that these two paths are no longer valid in this day and age, which is a great mistake that only serves to obscure the issue and cover up support for landlord-type agrarian measures. What could be posited is that such a path develops today under new conditions, the development of bureaucratic capitalism and the use of cooperative and associative forms in general. The peasant path has been extraordinarily developed and studied by Mao Zedong, as can be seen in Volume 3 of his Selected Works, 6, The Land Problem, page 247. We wish to clarify that the three mountains which oppress us are inseparably linked. For this reason, they constitute the target of the democratic revolution, the targets which we struggle against inseparably. What democratic revolution aims to liquidate is not capitalism in general, but bureaucratic capitalism. It is not directed against the bourgeoisie in general, but against the grand bourgeoisie, both the comprador and bureaucratic factions. As has been said before many times, a bourgeois revolution of a new type is led by the proletariat because the bourgeoisie has become a rotten obsolete class, and in our countries, a middle-slash-national bourgeoisie strong enough to take up the leading role does not exist presently, nor has it existed in the past. For this reason, as the development of the oppressed countries over these past decades has shown us, its modernization follows the landlord or Prussian path of slow evolution towards capitalism, semi-feudalism, based on the latifundium and on new forms of serfdom. This results in the development of a bureaucratic capitalism, which is completely subordinate to the requirements of imperialism, deforming the economic development of these countries and impeding the development of a national economy in service of the classes that constitute the masses in these countries. 
Until we complete the democratic revolution by means of people's war for the conquest of power throughout the whole country, this path of slow evolution will be maintained indefinitely. It will not reach completion like in Germany because we find ourselves in the epoch of imperialism, principally Yankee imperialism in our case, and in other cases, the correspondent principal imperialism which oppresses them. The most important part for us is that bureaucratic capitalism matures the conditions for revolution, and what is needed is a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist, Communist party to initiate and develop people's war in order to carry out democratic revolution to its completion. That's the end. This one was a little wonky because it was translated from Spanish, but I hope you enjoyed it. You can get stuff like this before the rest of the world for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash epic incredulity. And for now, comrades, enjoy your epoch. And here's a blooper reel as a treat. The year in which the percentage peak previously reached in 1913. The year in which fucking cops that principally dominates the newly independent country. <sighs> Fuck. Dependence on foreign markets, increasing demands on quality. No, squirrel. No. 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 U.S. imperialism and Japanese imperialism. Uh. In this region of Asia. Uh. There's a plane flying in the sky. It's making noise and I'm mad about it. I'm mad at it. I'm mad as fuck. I'm gonna shit my pants. I'm gonna shit my pants. I'm gonna shit my pants. I'm gonna shit right now. It is important to clarify two 